The Inside Learning Podcast is brought to you by the Learnovate Center. Learnovate's research explores the power of learning to unlock human potential. Find out more about Learnovate's research on the science of learning and the future of work at learnovatecenter.org. The Jigsaw Classroom is a cooperative learning technique with a five-decade-long track record of successfully reducing racial conflict and increasing positive educational outcomes. Not only does it open the door to warmer, closer friendships within and across ethnic boundaries, it has a proven track record of increasing self-esteem among students while improving their performance and increasing their liking for school and their enthusiasm about learning. The jigsaw technique was first developed in the early 1970s by today's guest and his students at the University of Texas and the University of California. Since then, hundreds of schools have used the Jigsaw Classroom with great success. It is a great pleasure to welcome our guest. He is the only person in the 120-year-old history of the American Psychological Association to have won all three of its major awards for writing, for teaching, and for research. In 2007, he received the William James Award for Lifetime Achievement from the Association for Psychological Science. He is ranked as one of the most cited psychologists of the 20th century. While he officially retired in 1994, he continues to teach and write, and he turned 90 just last week. It is an immense honor to host him on Inside Learning. Author, scholar, inventor of the Jigsaw Classroom and great human being, Elliot Aronson, welcome to Inside Learning, brought to you by the Learnovate Centre here in Trinity College, Dublin, Ireland. Good to be with you again, Aidan. And happy birthday to you, man. Thank you. Thank you. It's been quite a birthday celebration. I never thought I'd get this far, but uh, here I am at 90. I look forward to adding another decade to the the five decades that uh, Jigsaw's been around as well, and that you're around to witness that. And hopefully this episode helps as well, Elliot. And I thought a lovely way to start today's show would be to rewind 81 years to the year before Hitler came to power as Chancellor of Germany. It was then a nine-year-old Elliot grew up overhearing adults talking in hushed tones about the terrible atrocities being committed against your relatives in Europe. While you were too young to fully understand the horror of what was happening back then, you were old enough to understand the bullying you experienced on a daily basis. Yours was the only Jewish family in a virulently anti-Semitic neighborhood in a rundown blue-collar city just northeast of Boston. Perhaps you'd take us back to here because it was here the seeds of a future were planted that you did not know how they'd turn out. That's true. I, my, my family was fairly Orthodox Jewish and there was a, a small Jewish uh, neighborhood uh, two or three miles from my house. And uh, in order to get there, I used to go there, uh, we used to go to Hebrew school um, after public school. So we'd go there late in the afternoon, uh, four or five o'clock in the afternoon, and it would last for two hours. So in the winter, when I was coming home from Hebrew school, uh, it was dark, and I used to have to walk through uh, uh, this anti-Semitic neighborhood. And often there'd be um, 
little clusters of uh, teenage uh, tough guys hanging out. And when they saw me walking by, uh, they would often uh, shout uh, anti-Semitic uh, uh, epithets at me and uh, tell me, uh, why don't you go back where you came from? And I, I, I never knew where that was. I came from right around the corner. <laughs> uh, and I was headed home. But um, I, I used to try to avoid these gangs whenever I could, but uh, I wasn't always successful. And sometimes they only shouted things at me. Occasionally, they pushed me around a little bit. And every once in a while, they really roughed me up. And um, oh, 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 one night after uh, after they, uh, they a particularly tough time when they pushed me around and roughed me up a little bit, and I, I remember I was sitting on a curbstone, nursing a bloody nose and a split lip, and feeling really sorry for myself. And I started to wonder why why these kids hated Jews so much. Um, uh, were they born that way, or uh, did somebody teach them? You know, their priests or their parents that Jews were hateful people. Um, and you know, all the Jews I knew were sort of nice guys. And I was nine years old, and I'm sitting there thinking, gee, if they got to know me better and got to know what a kind of a sweet and harmless and generous little kid I was, would they uh, like me more? And then I thought, gee, and if they liked me more, could they? would that mean that they might hate other Jews less? Um, and I thought about that for a while. And what? so I was thinking about, you know, could, could that, could their attitude toward me be changed and would that affect their attitude toward other people um, who were like me in some way. Um, and I remember, it's a very vivid memory. This is one of my most vivid childhood memories. It was a kind of an insight into human behavior. But I was nine years old at the time. 10 years later, I, when I was a college student, I was having, I was majoring in economics of all things and not liking it um, very much. And I was having a cup of coffee with a, an attractive young woman that I was uh, interested in getting to know better. And suddenly she looked at a watch and she had to run off to class. So I figured I'd go with her because uh, she thought it was a big introductory class, an introductory psychology. And it was a huge lecture hall. And I thought maybe we could sit in the back of the room and hold hands or something like that. Those were innocent times. Um, and it was a class being taught by uh, a guy named Abraham Maslow. Now, at the time, I didn't know that he was the great Abraham Maslow, uh, the founder of the humanistic psychology movement. I just thought he was some Professor Maslow. And I was sitting there trying to hold hands with this young woman and um, Maslow's talking and he was talking about prejudice. And I was listening and he started to raise some of the same questions that I had raised when I was nine years old sitting on that curb in Revere, Massachusetts. And I thought, my God, 
It looks like there's a whole science devoted to raising questions and trying to answer questions of the kind that I was asking when I was nine years old. I, I dropped the girl's hand and began taking notes. And uh, I, I lost the girl, but I, I gained a vocation. I switched my major the very next day from economics to psychology. Uh, I got to know Maslow very well and became a, a protege of his. Um, I thought he was terrific and he thought I was pretty good and um, encouraged me to go on to graduate school. And um, <laughs> uh, the rest, as they say, uh, is history. I, in graduate school, you know, Maslow was not a very good scientist, but he had good ideas. Uh, when I went to graduate school, I eventually fell under the influence of a guy named Leon Festinger, who was perhaps the, the greatest social psychologist of my generation. And uh, I learned a lot about how to do research from that guy, and then eventually got to do research on the topic that made me interested in psychology in the first place. I love this. I love the story. And by the way, bravo and hats off to you about the way you structured that in the story as well. The thing that came to my mind was how the universe has a great knack of putting things to right. And, and also a quote by the great C.S. Lewis jumped to mind, hardships often prepare ordinary people for an extraordinary destiny. It was that hardship that nine year old Elliot experiencing that hardship that gave you the lens through which to listen to Maslow. And then I loved how later on, it was Maslow plus Festinger that gave you the great rigor and discipline the great left and right brain, if you want to put it that way, because you said Festinger encouraged rigorous testing. And you admit how in the process of falling in love with the art of experimentation, at this time, you lost sight of the reason you had gotten interested in psychology in the first place. That is your youthful desire to do something to improve the human condition. And then an interesting thing happened. It was 1971. And you were a professor at the University of Texas in Austin. And something again happened where the universe put something on your plate. It's an amazing uh, coincidence. Um, because, yeah, you're absolutely right. What Festinger did was got me really excited about doing good experiments. Uh, and, uh, and learning uh, a lot about how the human mind works. And I got really excited about that, what's called basic research, learning the basic stuff about human nature. And I loved that. And I did a lot of research on that and, and just enjoyed the whole process of doing research. And I lost sight of the fact that the reason I went into psychology in the first place was to do good, was to learn more about prejudice and how to reduce it. Uh, which I hadn't been doing. I was just figuring, I was just doing the basic stuff of science. When I was living in Austin, Texas at the time, because I was a professor at the University of Texas, when the city of Austin desegregated uh, and all hell broke loose, um, 
Austin uh, was a residentially segregated city where uh, most of the white folks lived in the hilly area of uh, Austin and uh, most of the uh, uh, the African Americans and uh, Mexican Americans lived uh, across the highway on in in the flatlands of Austin and it was really almost total segregation. But when the schools were desegregated, the minority kids were bussed across town into the white neighborhoods. And uh, most of these kids had not interacted with uh, people of different races before. And um, it was um, it was really an awful situation where fistfights were breaking out in the corridors and schoolyards across the city. Uh, uh, desegregation did not go smoothly, um, which was, um, we were naive in thinking that desegregation would automatically lead to a reduction in prejudice. It didn't. It depends on what kids do when they get there, when they get into the classroom. Simply putting them together in the same room does not reduce prejudice. It depends on how they interact with each other. And we learned that uh, through experience, because what happened was I happened to have a former student, a fellow named Matthew Snap, who after he got his PhD in educational psychology, became an assistant superintendent of the Austin School District. And he called me up and said, look, all hell is breaking loose here. You're a social psychologist. Can you come in and do something about it? And I struck a deal with him at that time. And I said, look, I don't want to just slip, uh, put a Band-Aid on this problem. I want to try to find out what's really causing the difficulty. And if I can come up with some sort of solution, I want you to guarantee me that you will institutionalize it in the schools, and he agreed to do that. Uh, this was an important moment because it taught me a great lesson that crisis can be instructive, that uh, in general, school systems are very conservative and they tend not to try innovative things, but when they're in a crisis, they'll try anything to stop the crisis. The crisis in Austin at that time were, were that the kids were beating up on each other. It was a tough time. Um, so we went in, and the first thing we did, my students and I, I went in with five or six graduate students. We observed the classrooms. I told them, forget about any preconceptions you have about what a classroom is. Pretend you're a visitor from Mars, and you're observing how earthlings go to school. I want you to stay in the back of the room. Uh, the, the kids will soon forget you're there and just take notes. Note what's happening and the frequency with which it happens in the classroom. And they fanned out. I put one kid in each of five classrooms in the fourth, fifth, and sixth grades. And what they, when we all came back together again, at the top of everyone's list as the most frequent occurrence is a classroom is a very 
competitive place where the kids are vying against each other for the approval and esteem of the teacher. In other words, there's one important person in the classroom, and that is the teacher. And what happens is that the teacher stands in front of the room, asks the question, and then you see five or six hands go up. And this is what the kid, what my graduate students noted down. Five or six hands go up, but they don't just they don't simply raise their hand in a polite way, the way college students might do it, but they're practically leaping out of their chairs, the kids with their hands up. In the meantime, there are another 20 or 25 kids who don't know the answer or who aren't sure of the answer, and they don't have their hands up, they, and they're not even looking at the teacher. They're looking down at their shoes because if you don't know the answer, you don't want to make eye contact with the teacher because she might call on you and this might be humiliating. So um, the hands go up. The teacher calls on one kid, of course. And you can, when she calls on one kid, you can hear a groan go up from the other five or six kids who had their hands up. Why? Because they missed an opportunity to show the teacher how smart they are. And they're hoping, the grown going up, they're hoping that that kid falls on his face, the kid she calls on, because uh, then, they can get the, then they can get another chance at answering that question. Um, so it's a highly competitive situation. And in these classrooms, for the most part, the kids who had their hands up were white, and the kids, many of the kids who were looking at their shoes were black or brown. Uh, and why was this the case? Well, you know, before the Supreme Court decision in the United States in 1954 that made segregation uh, illegal, the rule, the law of the land was uh, decided in a case called Plessy versus Ferguson, in which it was decided that having separate but equal school facilities was okay, according to the Constitution, as long as all the facilities were equal, equal teaching, equal instruction, equal um, uh, science projects and things of that sort. Well, that was a lot of baloney because uh, although uh, there was segregation, there was separation, but it was never equal. So that was a concept of separate but equal. Well, it was separate, all right, but it wasn't equal. And these kids from the minority sections of town, when they got bust into, let's say they got into the sixth grade, in a white previously all white school, they were one full grade level. They were reading at a fifth grade level, and the kids in the sixth grade were reading at uh, the white kids were reading at a sixth or seventh grade level. So it was a highly competitive situation in the classroom, where the minority kids were guaranteed to lose because once desegregation occurred. They were thrust into a situation where they were underprepared. 
Now, what this did was exacerbate or underscore the whatever prejudices, whatever stereotypes these kids may have had of each other. The, the white kids had the stereotype of black and brown kids as being either stupid or lazy or both. And the, uh, the minority kids, their preconceptions of the white kids were they were pushy, they were show-offs, they were teacher's pets, uh, they were um, overly assertive, and all of that was realized by their experience. The white kids were jumping up with their hands up in the air, and the black kids were sitting there looking at their shoes. This seemed to, this seemed to confirm their existing stereotypes, so that if someone had intentionally designed a classroom atmosphere that was guaranteed to make the reasons for desegregation fail. Desegregation was failing because if someone had intentionally designed a competitive process where the minority group was, was going to lose in the competition, they couldn't have done a better job. Uh, but nobody did it on purpose. That's just the atmosphere, atmosphere that existed in 99% of the classrooms in the country, highly competitive. And with desegregation, highly competitive in a way where the minority kids were underprepared for that kind of thing. That was the situation that we observed. That was the observation that every single one of my graduate students made. And the next question, of course, which I know you're going to ask is, <laughs> what did you do about it? Yeah. So, you know the question, but I just wanted to throw in one thing, which was, while you discovered this five decades ago, and you put a solution into place, you opened it up, you open sourced it, essentially, it's still available on jigsaw.org. The challenge still remains, the problem still remains in so many instances, I just wanted to give you an example, because it reminded me of something that I witness now, where my son is eight, and he plays in sport, and they resist in sport doing a thing called streaming, where they put people of equal ability together, so they don't prevent somebody who's weaker being standing out and the other kids almost turning on them, which is which happens naturally. It doesn't mean the kid is a bad kid. Some kids are be more patient, etc., depending on their upbringing and many other things. But you witnessed this as well. You witnessed this instance where, okay, well, the kids, when they do cut the other kids some slack, what if they screw up as well? And I just wanted to throw that in there before you take us through what you started to do about this, because I absolutely love it. I even think Jigsaw is so useful for teams and organizations to avoid bias towards innovation or new ideas, or even people who are learning about change and cultural change within organizations. So I just wanted to throw that in there for audience to listen through that lens as well. This is not a historical lesson. This is still amongst us every single day. Absolutely. It's still going on. And, and one has to do this kind of thing very, very carefully, very cautiously, because uh, if you do it a little bit incorrectly, it's easy to make matters worse. But if you do it right, 
things get better. So let me describe what we did. And um, the idea popped, it seemed to pop into my head uh, within 24 hours. I was thinking about it, but of course, there was a whole history in social psychology about cooperation and competition. And so I was really standing on the shoulders of previous people who had thought about this stuff. What we decided to do, we invented a thing, my students and I, called the, we called it the jigsaw classroom, when we divided the classroom, instead of having one group of students with some of them raising their hands and some of them looking at their shoes, we divided them into small groups of four, five, six kids in each group. And then we divided the lesson into an equal number of parts for the size of each group. And we gave each kid one piece of the lesson. So for example, um, if there was in, in history, they were or social studies, they're learning about Eleanor Roosevelt. Well, we rewrote a biography of Eleanor Roosevelt into, say, six parts, her childhood, her adolescence, her marriage to Franklin Roosevelt, his coming down with polio, his being elected president. And then after World War II, when he died at near the end of World War II, uh, she became active in the United Nations, etc. So each each paragraph was at about a different phase of her life. We assigned one kid a paragraph, each paragraph, and had them learn it well. And that was the only access each of the other kids in a jigsaw group had to that paragraph is to listen to the kid who's going to recite that paragraph to you in his own words or her own words. Um, as soon as I, as soon as we invented that, I thought of the kid playing right field in a baseball game. So, uh, I think this is the one, the kind of thing you were making allusion to. Uh, so every American kid's worst nightmare is to be is to be the worst player on the team, the kid that's chosen last, out in deep right field. Uh, Near the end of the game, the score is tied, the bases are loaded, and you're playing out in right field, and someone hits an easy, lazy fly ball into deep right field, and you're circling around under it, and you drop it. In the meantime, the bases are loaded with two outs, and everybody is circling the bases, and you're the goat of the team because you cost them the game. I thought about that. It's every kid's nightmare. Uh, how do you avoid it? Well, suppose a black kid whose reading skills are not very good uh, is assigned a particular paragraph and can't really present it well, then he's going to be disliked by his or her teammates. So we tried to correct for that. Um, kids get an assignment and then they leave their jigsaw group for a half hour. And they and all of the kids who are assigned 
a particular segment of Eleanor Roosevelt's life, get together and talk about how they're going to present it. So that even a kid whose reading skills aren't very good can pick up from the other kids the way that it's going to be presented and they can incorporate that into their own presentation. So they really have learned that paragraph well by the time they go back into their jigsaw group to present it to their teammates. It doesn't happen all at once. It usually takes four or five days before the kids begin to function like a truly good cooperative group. But within four or five days, at the beginning, there may be a lot of competitive stuff and annoyance and angry words being spoken. But when they realize that they're totally interdependent, that they really, you're not going to do well. If you're in a five-person group and there are three minority kids in that group, and you don't like them, you're a white guy, and you don't like them, and you don't want to listen to them, well, then the highest grade you can get is 40%. So you better start listening. And if they're having a, if one of them is having a little trouble reciting, instead of heckling him or calling him names or saying that he's stupid or something like that, which would happen initially, you realize that He's got 20% of your score right there, and you better listen to him, and you better help him. You better ask him some good questions, like a really good interviewer does, that'll help him bring out the stuff that's inside of him. And after four or five days, they get it, and they begin to do it. And what happens is within six weeks, within six weeks, only six weeks, not only do they learn the material, better than they do in the usual competitive classroom. And they do, their, their grades go up, especially the minority kids. Grades and object, in objective exams improve by from nine to 15 percentage points, which is huge. But not only that, they become, they really begin to like their teammates a lot more, regardless of race. They, they their prejudice in general goes down, their self-esteem improves, their liking for school improves, absenteeism goes down in jigsaw groups compared to, to uh, students being taught in the same school system in the traditional ways. And within six, six weeks, all of that happens. We also found subsequently that empathy the general trait of empathy, the ability to put yourself in the shoes of other people increases enormously in Jigsaw where it doesn't increase in competitive groups. And that's a very important um, trait to develop in a child early. Empathy, the ability to put yourself in another person's shoes. In the competitive classroom, Empathy among kids does not develop very quickly because, as I mentioned earlier, the only important person in the competitive classroom is the teacher. You want the teacher to like and respect you and think you're a good student. You don't care what the other kids think of you that much. And if you have reason to keep away from certain kids because 
they're the wrong race in your mind, then you never develop empathy for them. But if you're interdependent with four or five other students in your jigsaw group, you have to pay attention to them and not just to the teacher. So when they're talking, you really have to listen. When you have a question, you ask them that question in a way that's non-threatening, that's non-competitive, that's in a way that helps them if they're a little nervous, a little um, have a little difficulty. You want to ease their path a little bit so that they can give you what you need from them. And in the process, you learn that one of your group mates uh, teasing them might be helpful. They like it, or another, but another one doesn't like it. Another one you have to be very, very gentle with. And in learning how to relate to each of those kids in your group, you're developing the general trait of empathy. How does it feel to be that other person? You're learning all about that. And that, to me, is one of the most important things about Jigsaw, that we're living in a world that's getting smaller and smaller, where uh, if we're going to solve some of the global problems, like global warming, like uh, the, the, the decrease in the ozone layer, like the pollution of the ocean, and things of that sort, these are global problems. No nation, no one or two nations, no matter how popular, populous, no matter how uh, important and powerful it is, no nation can solve those problems on their own. These are global problems, and we need to cooperate with one another to solve them. Uh, we're in a situation at this moment where Vladimir Putin is an anachronism. This usurpation of territory is not where it's at right now. Where it's at right now is global cooperation in order to, to save the planet, or else we're not going to, this is not going to be habitable in a hundred years. And our, our great-grandchildren are going to have a lot of trouble unless we start working together. And what Jigsaw teaches is how to cooperate. And it teaches kids early in fourth, fifth, sixth grade how to cooperate. The benefits of cooperation, which is a reduction in prejudice, a joyous aspect of school, all of these things come to pass. Um, it sounds almost miraculous, but it's not. It's easy to see how it happens when kids are cooperating with each other, how it builds lasting friendships, how the stupidities of prejudice, not liking a person because of the color of their skin, that seems ludicrous. Why would you ever use that as a major criterion? Would you not like someone because they have blue eyes? Uh, would you not like someone because their ears tend to stick out? Why are these things important? Why is skin color important? It's not. And what Jigsaw does is cut through all of that baloney and get to the essence of things. And the results of our research and other people's research that's now done, being done all over the world 
jigsaw classrooms really produce really great effects in every aspect of education and life. And um, uh, if I had my way, I ha I'd have it universal in all schools because there's no downside to it. Every aspect of jigsaw produces results that are useful and important. As I listened to you and as I read the book, and by the way, the book is available on Amazon. It's Cooperation in the Classroom, The Jigsaw Method. And also there's an abundance of resources available on jigsaw.org. But I thought, Elliot, about how you could intercept a problem so early that manifests later on in life in the workplace, because the workplace for so many people is just like that competitive classroom you described. People are competing for the attention of their superior. They're teaching, they're competing for compensation and reward and recognition in a similar way that happened in the classroom right back there. And if we applied those methods, or we developed that empathy at a young age, the amount of pain that people go through later on in life could be avoided. And that is one of the things that I love about this. And I really wanted to share your work. And for those people who are wondering how it pans out, I thought a, a wonderful way to thank you for joining us today would be to share a letter that you got years later, because this came from one of those students and it was unbeknownst to you. And if it's okay with you, I'd love to share this letter. Sure, sure. Bear with me as I, as I read this out. It goes as follows. Dear Professor Aronson, I am a senior at the University of Texas. Today I got a letter admitting me to Harvard Law School. This may not seem odd to you, but let me tell you something. I am the sixth of seven children my parents had, and I am the only one who ever got to college, let alone graduate or go to law school. By now you are probably wondering why this stranger is writing to you and bragging to you about his achievements. Actually, I'm not a stranger, although we have never met. You see, last year I was taking a course in social psychology and we were using a book you wrote, The Social Animal. And when I read about prejudice and jigsaw, it all sounded very familiar. And then it came to me, I realized that I was in that very first jigsaw class you ever put together when I was in fifth grade. As I read on, it dawned on me that I was the boy you called Carlos. And then I remembered you when you first came into our classroom and how I was scared and how I hated school and how I was so stupid and I didn't know anything. And you came in and it all came back to me as I read your book. You were very tall, about six and a half foot, and you had a big black beard and you were funny and you made us all laugh. And most important, when we started to do work in jigsaw groups, I began to realize that I wasn't really stupid at all. And the kids I thought were cruel and hostile became my friends. And the teacher acted friendly and nice to me. And I actually began to love school. And I began to love to learn things. And now I'm about to go to Harvard Law School. You must get a lot of letters like this, but I decided to write it anyway, because let me tell you something. My mother tells me that when I was born, I almost died. I was born at home and the cord was wrapped around my neck. And the midwife gave me mouth to mouth and saved my life. If she was still alive, 
I would write to her too, to tell her that I grew up smart and good and I'm going to law school, but she died a few years ago. And now I'm writing to you because, no less than her, you saved my life too. Sincerely, Carlos. I thought that was a way to thank you, Elliot, for the incredible contribution you've made towards so many people and so many people you would never even know of so many Carlos's out there. And I wanted to give you the final word before I sign off today's show, perhaps to our audience to encourage them to take up the jigsaw method. I never get tired of, uh, of hearing that letter. Uh, and what, one of the things, the most touching thing about it is when I wrote, I wrote a, as you say, that uh, as Carlos said, I wrote a book called The Social Animal, which is a, a short introductory book about social psychology. And when, and I described in the chapter on prejudice, I described what we did with the jigsaw classroom. And I used an example of a kid in that very first class that I, called Carlos and that's what he read and and he was I'm I'm sure he was in one of the early classrooms but when I looked at his name on the envelope that his letter came in it was not the kid I had in mind that I called Carlos when I wrote that book so then I thought I remember sitting in my I was by that time I had moved to the University of California I was sitting in my office looking out the window as I'm reading this letter. And I, you know, I, I was practically in tears. But when I saw that it wasn't the kid that I had thought of as Carlos, <laughs> I got this fantasy, a kind of a, a narcissistic fantasy of all over the country, there are kids reading the social animal and thinking, hey, I'm Carlos. And <laughs> in a sense, they are, every one of them. There are probably thousands of kids who could identify with the example I used in that book of kids who thought they were stupid, who weren't doing well, and suddenly it all got turned around for them. Not all of them are going to go to Harvard Law School, but all of them are going to be a hell of a lot more successful in life because they had an early experience where they got the friendship, the support, the encouragement, not only from their teachers, but from their fellow students around them. And that's what happens in Jigsaw. Absolutely beautiful. Author, scholar, inventor of the Jigsaw Classroom. And as our audience will now know, a great human being, Elliot Aronson, Thank you for joining us on Inside Learning, brought to you by the Learnavate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. And for all the lives you have saved and minds you have kindled, thank you very much. You're very welcome, Aidan. Good to be with you. So next up on the Inside Learning podcast, we're joined by tech lead at the Learnavate Centre in Trinity College, Pablo Alvarez. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Aidan. Great to have you back, man. Great to have you back. And I am so delighted that you have experience of this amazing man, this amazing 
background, this amazing technique, the jigsaw method, although you didn't know it as that. I'd love you to share with our audience. Yes. Yeah. Like uh, when I was listening to Mr. Aronson's speech today and thinking about the letter from Carlos and what you said, and this still among us single day, it made me think that day, like 12 years ago in that class, that was an explosive, definitely an explosive situation. I had 15 kids with 15, uh, 15 years old and one from Paraguay, two from Romania, some kids with uh, learning difficulties. That was an explosive situation. And I, I was myself uh, into the situation. I had to produce some technique so to solve that or to give lessons in a different way. So what I did is just split them in groups. And I distributed my unit, my lesson unit, among them. And they had to explore the different, it was about telecommunications installations. So they had to explore uh, the different way that they produced, uh, they used um, antennas or radar or TVs. And they had to tell, uh, in, in change, exchange the groups and they tell the stories to the others. So they all had to do the work because they all uh, had to learn about the topics. And uh, it was for the benefits of all of them. So it, it was a teamwork. And but that time, Aiden, I didn't know that that was kind of called the jigsaw class. It was a kind of a, my adaptation into jigsaw class or whatever. When I learned about this jigsaw class technique, I was amazed by that. It's so great that you've had experience of it and that you've seen it work for you as well. The serendipity of that is wonderful that you had that experience, but a great way to connect it now to the work you do as tech lead and the projects you oversee, the projects you witness, the research you do, would be great to link them together. I'd love you to share this. So how do you see the Jigsaw Classroom through the lens of the work you do today? So there's different, obviously, um, tangential other uh, methodologies like the problem-based learning or the collaborative learning that I've seen in many of my research work with different customers, not only the commercial side, from, but also from the core research projects. So from the commercial side, I can mention, for example, using uh, methodologies like design thinking, where you need to put together, we normally put together in, in, in a room, uh, obviously a virtual room now, uh, with, in front of a mirror board, uh, people uh, from different departments in a company to talk about uh, a challenge that they have, and they have to... Uh, be freely participating in ideation sessions. That really is, is, is kind of a jigsaw classroom, but they're not used to that. The people in the different departments of the company, they didn't used to go into the same virtual room for three hours and discuss about their, their own business problems. And there's other examples in for the core research. We have three examples. One example would be the onboarding project. One of the uh, members participating actively in that project is CERC, the Southeastern Regional College. And they use this project-based uh, learning, and obviously they use teamwork as well. And one of the features that we would love to promote from this uh, research is the uh, the bodies the, the bodies uh, network. So uh, the, the concept is that when you are onboarding uh, on a new uh, business, on a new company, the, one of the first things that I, I, we research that we will be beneficial for you is to know who is surrounding you, who is at your network in the business. So how can you work with together with your colleagues uh, proficiently and how can you learn <clears throat> effectively and how can you uh, perform uh, much quicker as an onboardee. And then the other two examples are, one is the well-being and learning. They belong to the, another, our new phase three pillar, which is called the learner in the future of work. So one will be the well-being and learning. 
which explores the how can we design well-being into work. That will be the objective of the project. And the outcomes of the first one research was that the, the solution the, or the antidote, as my colleague Ilsa White, uh, the corporate expert in learning, she says, is the resilience. Okay, so thinking about technology, how can organizations leverage, for example, people analytics or technology to facilitate a conversation about needs and measure and support well-being of its works workforce? And the other one, and it's really uh, resonate uh, with me when uh, Mr. Arnson mentioned the Maslow theory in psychology, because uh, I was reading about Maslow theory, and it's all about uh, the needs that um, um, dictate an individual's behavior, which are the physiological safety, love and belongings, steam needs, and the self-actualization, which really resonate, resonates. It's the other, the third core project that uh, my colleague Peter Gillis is running. It's uh, the Remotivate project. It's the one that is exploring how might we scaffold and sustain learner motivation to engage with blended learning over time. So I saw that Peter Gillis has uh, its uh, motivational layers and, la and components to consider in supporting learner motivation. And it kind of very much, uh, kind of well matched the uh, Maslow uh, theory in psychology because they are going through the learner readiness about self-diagnosis or socialization, organization, and you can move there into the environment, obviously, and the activities you run in an online setup, and obviously the lectures and institutions. So those will be my, my relations to uh, from the Aronson's work and the Jigsaw Classroom to our learner with both core research and commercial projects. Wonderful, Pablo. And where can people find out more about those projects? www.learnovate.org or you can just text us in info at learnovatecenter.org or you, you can obviously go and uh, search Learnovate Center at LinkedIn and follow us and tweet it as well or follow the Inside Learning podcast. And that's it for another episode of Inside Learning, the podcast brought to you by the Learnovate Center in Trinity College, Dublin. I want to thank our guest, Pablo Alvarez, tech lead at the Learnovate Centre. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Adam. Inside Learning is brought to you by the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College, Dublin. Learnovate is funded by Enterprise Ireland and IDA Ireland. Visit learnovatecentre.org to find out more about our research on the science of learning and the future of work.